Father in heaven, please send your spirit to bless us today. Lord, I thank you for the opportunities that you have sent our way, for the blessings that we have known. Lord, lead us, take us where we need to be. Help us that we'll be faithful in our generation. In Jesus' name, amen. When you reach a certain point in your life, you discover that there are few things in life more painful than missed opportunities. Chances that once were ours, but are now gone forever. Such is the tone of the book Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, a truly melancholy masterwork, if you can say that, by the genius who gave us the much more hopeful A Christmas Carol. But because Great Expectation lacks a holiday to make it famous, mostly it's a book that the, only the literature majors, the English literature majors in our midst really know about, though we tend to know this title pretty well. And let me just say in fairness, if you're an English literature major, Life is tough enough for you already, so occasionally in the sermon we try to throw you a bone so you don't feel like that education was completely wasted. You did get something from that. I say that because my wife was an English literature major, and I, I love to kind of poke her on that one. But anyway, if you're an English literature major, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. But for the rest of us, let me just give you the gist of the story it is, I believe, a story very much about good things that could have happened, but then for whatever reason, didn't. And this theme of, of great hopes, great expectations that are never realized, are primarily, it's played out in the love of Pip, a common boy, for Estella, the girl that he meets and falls in love with when he's young, but also a girl who, for any number of reasons, could love him, but will never let herself do it, even though her heart of hearts knows that's where she belongs, and with him it's really the only way she would ever be happy. But the whole story is a story of what could have been, but wasn't. And as you get down to the end of it, Pip and Estella meet again late in life, and they have lived lives that only regret and lost opportunity can give you. And in the last chapter, after all is essentially lost, they have this encounter. It goes like this. I have often thought of you, said Estella. Have you? Of late, very often. There was a long, hard time when I kept far from me the remembrance of what I had thrown away when I was quite ignorant of its worth. But since my duty has not been incompatible with the admission, the admission of that remembrance, I have given it a place in my heart. There are few things in life more painful than missed opportunities, chances that once were ours, but now are gone. Have you ever squandered opportunity to do something in your life that really mattered? You missed that window of time for a relationship, maybe? Life has a way of beating us down 
for the opportunities that we squander. And Estella says, There was a long, hard time when I kept far from me the remembrance of what I had thrown away when I was quite ignorant of its worth. I had paused to reflect on these words yesterday because my third son, Aaron, changed his profile picture on his Facebook page. So it popped up on my screen, and here's the picture that popped up. So that's Gable without the teeth. So that probably puts him first grade, second grade. And that's Nathan there on the side over here, and then little Aaron down there in the corner. And I saw that picture, and it warmed my heart. But I thought, you know, when you're in the middle of those days, you swear they're never going to end, and you might not survive. (laughs) And then one day... Your youngest puts that picture on his Facebook page and you wonder, how many opportunities did I miss? Because those little boys don't come back like that. We don't want to miss opportunities. And we particularly don't want to miss opportunities to bless little people in our church when we can. We are as a church at one of those times when we have a chance to do something of great worth. But before we consider that in detail, I want to walk us through a passage of Scripture that I think very well defines where we find ourselves today. It's found in Luke chapter 12. We begin in verse 35. This is Jesus talking. He says, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. And maybe this is a good link to what we talked about last Sabbath. You know, we've been talking about different meals with Jesus. And and, uh, last Sabbath was about the marriage supper of the Lamb. But here it's a little different. This time the master has gone to a marriage uh, banquet and the servants are waiting for him to return. But now with this story, we've thought about these kinds of stories a lot, where we're the servants waiting for the master to return. But this story makes a point about the experience of waiting for Jesus to come again that we might not be expecting. I'm pretty sure we don't often read this story that Jesus tells exactly the way it's written. Verse 35, be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Now catch this. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. So now this is unprecedented. This is unheard of. The the master, when he returns, is going to serve the servants. Or at least he's going to serve the servants who he finds watching when he returns. But what does watching mean? We've definitely run off on this idea of watching with many possible explanations for what watching means. And typically, this is the road we go down. Typically, we've gone with watching means self-examination, 
putting away sins, believing truth, and staying pure. And I don't want to completely dismiss that as wrong. In fact, I want to encourage you because there may be some here today for whom this is the part of the message you most need, that you should be doing some self-examination right now and some putting away of sins and some believing in truth and some staying pure. So I want you to grab that if that is the message the Spirit has for your heart today. But I do also want to suggest to you that that's not necessarily exactly what watching means in this passage. More of Jesus' words. Verse 38. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. So the message is clear. Be ready. Jesus will come at an unexpected time, which we usually take to mean Jesus will be coming sooner than we expect. Though, so far, if you look at Seventh-day Adventist history, Jesus didn't come sooner than we expected, did he? In truth, he's come later than we expected. Think about that. Then Peter had a question about who Jesus was talking to. Verse 41, Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? So this message is going out to all the faithful, all the wise managers who have been put in charge of God's house. And what is the word to them? Verse 42. The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants for what purpose? to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Now, there's two things I want you to notice. First, in this passage, Jesus defines waiting not as some sort of sustained, private, devotional intensity, but rather he defines waiting as a sacrificial service rendered willingly to those in God's house. You see, waiting here means giving the other servants their food at the proper time. We tend to think waiting means continually peeking out the window, right? But in this story, Jesus doesn't say, blessed is the servant who happens to be peeking when I come. 
He says, blessed is the servant who's doing what I asked him to do when I come. Now here's the second point of ironic significance. There is a servant in the house who is obsessed with when the master will come. It's the second servant mentioned. And because to him, it seems like the master is taking a long time, he begins to melt down. Because he's just trying to look good for the master. So he's constantly looking. But when the master doesn't come, what does it say? He begins to beat the other servants. Let me just ask you, have you ever seen anything like that happen amongst us before? Those that keep peeking but the master doesn't come finally have to start blaming the other servants for him not being here? The truth is the servant is called to serve until the master returns. And the blessing comes to the one who is doing what the master has asked him to do when he gets there. But it doesn't go well for the one who misses the opportunity to serve. Verse 47, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. You see, it's, it's better to be ignorant and do wrong than to know what God has asked us to do and refuse to do it. Kind of reminds me of the reading we began with from Great Expectations. There was a long, hard time when I kept far from me the remembrance of what I had thrown away when I was quite ignorant of its worth. These are dreadful words. Words that unfaithful servants come to know. For they all come to pay for the days when in ignorance or in distraction they missed the chance to do the good that God had appointed for that time. And then comes the heaviest line of all. Verse 48. The last part, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So now let's step back for a moment and ask ourselves two questions. Number one, are we as individuals, individuals to whom much has been entrusted? And number two, are we a church to whom much has been given and entrusted? Individuals and a church. Now, I don't know for certain how you will answer that first question, but let me suggest, because it's, sometimes you kind of look around here and think, well, compared to them, I'm dragging. But let me suggest, even for the least of us in here, we command fortunes compared to most of history and most of the world. I'll give you an example of what I mean. I have at least two chairs in my house that are probably more comfortable 
than any throne any king ever sat on through the generations. And I'm not even counting the couches. And I have this thing called a bedroom. And in it is this thing called a bed. And I go in there every night and lay on it. And my children have their own rooms with their own beds. That's not normal. But it's normal for us, isn't it? I don't know if you have come to recognize just how much the Lord has entrusted to us as individuals, but I do want to tell you, He has entrusted us with much. But beyond that, do you realize how much He has entrusted us with as a church? I mean, just this place, this room. How many of you were here 51 roughly years ago when a group of believers smaller than the group assembled here right now got together and said, let's build this place? Not many, a couple. How many of you are blessed because of their faithfulness 50 years ago? See how that works? This place, this room, all our buildings, this church is blessed with an amazing pastoral staff we're blessed with each other. We're blessed with remarkable lay leadership in this community. You know what else we're blessed with? We're blessed with the fact that each Sabbath, at least 300 and sometimes as many as 500 children come through the doors of this church and cram themselves into the classrooms all around this facility where we are given the opportunity to teach Jesus to little kids. We have been given much and we have been entrusted with much. So you know what that means? God expects much from us. We are the servants who have been put in charge of the master's house. So how many of you like me want to be found doing the master's business when he returns. That sounds real good to me. Which brings us back to a comment I made earlier. We are as a church at one of those times when we have a chance to do something of great worth. Now, of course, that's always true. There is always the opportunity for the chance to do something of great worth. But there are moments in the history of a church when there is special opportunity. And I think that this is especially true for us right now in a way that will allow us to bless generations to come. After almost two years of processing and planning, and considering, and formulating, and discussing, and revising, and perfecting, and deciding. We find ourselves today at the official start of our Building Boldly for Jesus campaign to further update and expand our ministry capacity by expanding our lobby space and constructing a new children's ministry facility. We've settled on the project plan. We've determined the details. 
and we voted to boldly move forward. We've done it multiple times in the administrative committee. We've done it multiple times with the board. A year ago, roughly, we had a church business meeting, and in every setting where we have discussed this project openly, honestly, and fairly, every group has endorsed it unanimously every time. We've quite unexpectedly secured project funding from the Southern Union Revolving Fund. Now, normally that wouldn't be a problem. That's a fund that the union keeps that has money in it that can be lent out to different churches for their projects at a good, uh, at a good interest rate for the church. Now, there was a lot of money in the fund, but there were policies that suggested the condition of Florida Conference with all the different monies it had borrowed would not be allowed to borrow anymore. And so we were concerned as to exactly how we might be able to secure those funds until towards the end of last year in December, we got a call that said we'd been approved for the loan for our project that we thought we couldn't even get. The Lord has opened doors. Around that same time, someone came to the door of the office and came in and said, I am the executor of, a, of an estate. And as part of that estate, $80,000 is given to your church. But there wasn't any stipulation on where it would go. So I don't know, do you have a building fund? The Lord sent through the door more dollars than many of us could even give. We've chosen a contractor to partner with us in this project, a contractor who's eager to do it and excited to work with us. All we have left to do is finish raising our down payment and then secure pledges to cover the monthly payments to the revolving fund. And when we've done that, the work can begin possibly as soon as August of this year. And if everything goes according to the plan as they said it possibly could, the work could potentially be done in a year, meaning that we would be done with this project in about a year and a half from now. So maybe you noticed things looked a little different when you pulled in today. Maybe you saw that, uh, that little mini excavator down there with the sign on it. You would have been greatly amused if you'd have pulled in when I did and saw uh, Erica and Loretta out there in their church clothes trying to hang a sign on an excavator. It was quite a sight. But what a good job they've done to call attention that the time has come for action. Well, things are going to continue to look a little different for the next four Sabbaths. And they will start to look radically different in the very near future when our plans become actions and the building actually begins. But now is the time for us to whom much has been given and from whom much is required. Now is the time for us to step up and make our one-time donations and commit ourselves to our monthly pledges so that this project can become a reality. We are a people to whom much has been given. Therefore, we are a people from whom much will be required. But this should not strike us as a sadness 
or a great burden. We should instead thrill that the Lord has entrusted and enabled us to give the other servants their food allowance at the proper time, to use Jesus' term for it. Now is our chance to make provision for the future, to be a blessing for the generations to come. Just like another group of believers sacrificed 50 years ago, that we would be blessed to be in this place now. 50 years ago, a much smaller group of faithful believers who met and prayed and sang and lived and loved, many of whom have by now gone to their rest, committed themselves to one another and to a larger purpose than their day in hopes of a day that they couldn't see for certain our day. They pooled their resources, which quite honestly were considerably more limited than what we corporately command today, and built this building in which we meet and pray and sing and live and love, and yes, some of us go to our rest. They were faithful to the challenge in their generation, and now it's time for us to be faithful to the challenge in ours. But now a quick aside. Though I've made this point before, often it feels unfaithful as an Adventist to speak in terms of the generations to come. It feels like a lack of faith to think that our children might have children before Jesus comes. And our fetish for over-interpreting world events only feeds into this dynamic. Are we in the very last days? Well, I suppose technically we are more so than those who built this church were in the very last days 50 years ago. Not to mention all those Adventists who came before us over the last 100 years. But never forget, every one of those groups believed themselves in the very last days, just like we do. This is very real to me. I've mentioned before my grandfather... My grandfather died 10, 11 years ago at the age of 96. He was a faithful Adventist pastor for 50 plus years and continued active even later. But let me tell you a little story about what happened when my grandfather was born. He was born to good, faithful Adventist parents. And when he was born, they said to one another, He will never be old enough to bring in wood. Jesus will come before that. Not only did he get old enough to bring in wood, he served this church for 50-plus years. He established the generations of pastors in my family, of which I'm the third. And we don't bring in wood anymore, do we? This weekend, my dad is being recognized among others but he specifically has the oldest living of the former senior pastors of the Collegedale Church on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of that congregation. My dad concluded his pastorate at the Collegedale Church 40 years ago. Now let me say this. It is our shared hope that Jesus will indeed come before our children have children. But if that is how we think and behave, 
living our lives fixated on the timing of the Master's return, constantly peeking out the window, rather than fixated on attending to the Master's business, then we are being unfaithful to God's true calling on our lives and risk being the ones found not doing His business when He actually does come. If 50 years ago they'd have said, why bother with a sanctuary? Jesus will be here. Where would we be now? Not here. And if we don't act in our generation, then there'll be nothing we could possibly regret more. To give the other servants their food allowance at the proper time is absolutely all about us thinking long-term and acting to assure that the purpose and work of God is established for now and for as many days to come as there will be days to come. I'd be okay with us pouring ourselves into this project and Jesus coming before we were done. I'd be good with that. But I would not be okay with us not pouring ourselves into it, and then the wait goes longer than we expected. That would be regret. The truth is, it is time once again to expand our facility so that we can extend our ministry into the next generations. So a project was done about nine years ago. Can you believe it was that long? The project to build the parking lot. So now we have a place for the cars. Now we need a place for the people. We need lobby space. Because when you leave here from church, it's just kind of full contact till you make it out and get to your car. That's not really community action there, is it? No, we need more space. We need a place where you could sit and talk. A place where you could interact after the service. And it's particularly bad. You guys don't have it as bad as everybody else because you can hang around after your service. But if you go to first and second, you better get out of here because the next group is coming in and they don't really like your music. So you better get moving. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a place to go and connect? And what about those kids that every week we cram into those Sabbath school classrooms? We're thrilled they're there, but we can do better. We can do much better. And we can seize on this opportunity that we've been given to minister to these kids. We're going to be building up here in the next four weeks to a special Sabbath on May 13 when we will all together make pledges to meet our monthly payment requirements. So we can do this, and we will do this. In fact, because God has been so gracious with us, being victorious in this project is probably easier for us than we even want to admit. Because if everyone will get involved, like many who have already gotten involved, we're not going to need 15 years to pay off this note. We'll be able to do it in more like three, or at least that was the vision of our fundraising team leader who led our fundraising group to the ideas and how we were going to begin to do this. Our fundraising team leader said to us, I believe we can do this in three years. We really miss our fundraising team leader.
Rob Fulbright was our fundraising team leader. And he believed we could do this. And our team got together and said, let's do this in honor of Rob. We can do this. You should know that the leaders in this congregation, the financial leaders in this congregation, have already stepped forward. There are multiple folks in this congregation who have themselves given in excess of $100,000 to this project already. And some already are pushing 300000 in commitments from their family alone. In fact, we've received combined commitments that together total over $750,000 for this project from just three families in this church. Now let me tell you, it's one thing to be able to give at a level like that, but it's completely something else to be unselfish enough to do it. Kind of like having a whole box full of animal crackers and a whole bunch of kids in front who could be blessed if you shared one. While most of us will not be able to make pledges and gifts like that, some of us can, and I trust you will. And all of us can demonstrate unselfishness like that, even if we have to lop off a zero or two on those numbers. But we can demonstrate unselfishness. See, Steve had a smaller box than I did, but he was the first to share. So I say, let's get this done. There's two things we need. The first thing is, we need those one-time gifts. Because we got to meet that initial down payment amount. And we have an easy way for you to make those gifts if you'd like to do it. Because we got some special tithe envelopes. Look right in front of you in the pew there. You'll see some envelopes that look a little different than the ones we usually have there. Those are specifically for this project. I want you to take one of those and I want you to pray about what God puts on your heart to make that one-time contribution to help us get that initial down payment portion of this taken care of. And then on May 13, we want everybody involved. We want every family to participate. Our goal for May 13 is not a specific dollar amount. Our goal for May 13 is that everyone would participate, that everyone would have a part of building this future. Big or small, everyone involved. May 13, we're going to make pledges for monthly contributions, or you can set it up for other ways if it's better for you, but we're going to make those pledges on that day, and we've got a website set up for this and it's going to continue to develop as the weeks go by and you're going to be able to go there and on May 13 that site is going to have a place for you to be able to make your pledge right here right now where you're sitting in your seat you can do it other ways too but for all you tech savvy people you'll be able to do it right then you'll be able to set it up 
and it will go. May 13 is going to be a big day where we do that. But I want to encourage you between now and then to be considering if the Lord has enabled you to make that one-time contribution to help us get past the first hurdle. I say let's get it done. No regrets. I don't want anybody left out of participating in the project of this generation. Now, I'm absolutely with you in agreement that I hope Jesus comes before Ariel has her own kids. But if he doesn't, I want there to be an awesome place where she can bring those kids and they can learn about Jesus and a church that will partner with her and her family to pass the faith on to a new generation should our generation falter before Jesus returns. The Bible says, I will come at a time you do not expect. For us, that so far has meant later than we expected. Let's not sit on the blessing God has given us when we could use it to accomplish His purpose. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You have been gracious with this congregation. We have been blessed by the faithfulness of the generations that have gone before. And now is our chance to make a lasting difference that will bless however many generations are yet to come. Lord, our prayer is that you come soon. But we're not going to get so fixated peeking out the window that we forget to provide the food to the servants at the proper time. We believe the proper time has come. Enable us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.